you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. On the morning of Wednesday, April the 18th, 2007, uh, Tillman Gesk, a German missionary working in Turkey, prepared for another day. Gesk was working with a local church and was heading into the office to lead a Bible study. Kissed his wife goodbye, hugged his son and said to him, Goodbye, son, I love you. And heading, also heading to the Bible study were Pastor Nakati Adi, a father of two, and Uger Yuxel, a recent convert from Islam. They would be joined at the Bible study by several Muslim seekers, uh, young men who said that they were eager to explore Christianity and were considering converting. The Bible study began at about 10 o'clock with Pastor Nakati reading a Bible passage when suddenly the seekers got up, tied the three Christian men to their chairs, then brutally tortured them for three hours, filming it all on their cell phones. Eventually, around lunchtime, a colleague came to the office and was surprised to find that the door was locked from the inside. He phoned through, it was finally picked up, and he heard the sound of something like weeping in the background. He called the police. They hurried down, managed to get in. But by the time they had done so, Gesk and Nakati had been murdered, stabbed more than a hundred times. And Erga, the recent convert, was alive, but only barely. He would die soon after. This horrific story provides a tragic link to the book of Revelation. The first recipients of the book of Revelation were the people of Asia Minor, the place that we now know as Turkey. Uh, The Christians of Asia Minor were warned to expect persecution and tribulation, and it seems like the tribulation continues 2,000 years on. When will it stop? Will it ever stop? Why hasn't God stopped it? You see, these three men were God's people 
So why didn't God step in to save them? Perhaps you have asked these questions yourself. Certainly God's people have through the ages. In Revelation 6, we read last week, uh, we saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? You're sovereign, you're powerful, you're in control, you're holy and true. So how long before you rescue us and judge our persecutors? Well, today we get God's answer. See, today is God's response to the suffering, to the persecution of his people. Today's passage is known as the vision of the seven trumpets. The book of Revelation is dominated by three sets of visions, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets, the seven, uh, seven seals. Last week we looked at the seven seals, this week it's the seven trumpets. Uh, some people imagine that these cycles are sequential, that they trace different eras of history. Uh, I believe that they actually reflect on the same events, but show us from different angles. As Tim Chester writes, it's a little bit like when you're at the footy, uh, there's a goal scored and you see these different replays from different angles, and all of it designed to give you the full picture. That's what God's trying to give us here. He's showing us these things from a different angle and he wants us to get the full picture. And what does he want us to see today? He wants us to see two things. He wants us to be encouraged that God is hearing the prayers of his people and he wants us to see the warning of anyone who would oppose themselves, oppose God, who would set themselves up in opposition to God. You see, God has heard the cries of his people. Uh, the passage begins in chapter 8. We're going to look through 8 through to 11. And in verse 3, we're told that the prayers of God's people are rising up before God like incense. He's listening to them. And then the seven trumpets are his response. God's judgment on those who oppress his people. With each trumpet, we see this. The first trumpet brings devastation from the sky to the land. 8 verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second trumpet brings devastation to the sea. 8 verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third trumpet sees drinking water destroyed. A great star falls from heaven landing on the rivers making them bitter like wormwood and undrinkable. The fourth trumpet sees strange signs in the heavens. Uh, a fourth, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then there is an interlude between the fourth and the fifth trumpets. And an eagle comes out as a kind of messenger from God, basically saying that worse is yet to come. You see, the first four trumpets have been God's judgment exercised onto nature, but now it will turn to humans themselves. 
And so the eagle says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. There's going to be three great woes to them. And so we hear the fifth trumpet, Revelation 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. There was a popular view in Jewish culture at this time that uh, there was this great abyss in the earth that was essentially hell. And now we're told that this is being opened up and things are rising out of it. Verse 3, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions. And they torment people. People will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And still worse is to come. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. The sixth trumpet blows and now a giant army emerges from the Euphrates bringing destruction. It's it's a great army, scarcely conceivable. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million people, larger than the entire population of the Roman Empire. And they thunder in on horses, a terrifying sight bringing untold death and destruction. Verse 17, they wore breastplates, the colour of fire and of sapphire and of sulphur, and the heads of the horses were like the lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulphur came out of their mouths, and by them a third of mankind is killed. This is God's judgment. This is God's response to the cries of his people. Now, what are we to make of all this? I think the first question we need to ask is, how comfortable are we with this idea of God's judgment and of God's judgment in response to our prayers? You know, God's people have been praying and this is his response. And you might be sitting here thinking, I don't know if I, I want God to rescue his people, but does he have to be this dramatic? I noticed last night that that movie Taken was on. Uh, and if you've ever watched that movie, like the guy, his daughter is kidnapped and he goes to rescue her and he kills a lot of people in the process. And you kind of think, is this proportional? And perhaps you even read this and you think, is this proportional? I, I want God to rescue us because we're being bullied, but do it, does he have to be do this? I want to suggest to you today that perhaps that's a very Western view of things. We live in a culture where we haven't experienced physical persecution. Very few of us might have experienced that. And I need to tell you that those who have experienced persecution, physical persecution, in many other countries in the world, they speak about how they long for God to do something, to judge their enemies. I was reading something from a South African pastor during the apartheid era. It's scarcely been a place where the police and the army have not wantonly murdered our children, piling atrocity upon atrocity for the sake of the preservation of apartheid. And our, our cry continues to rise to heaven, How long, O Lord? Another writer says, Perhaps we, the Christian church in the West today, needs more anger, not less. We kind of had this comfortable experience of life, but those who are really experiencing persecution, they need God to come through. They're saying, how long, O Lord? 
Now, I want to talk about that more in the weeks to come, to kind of explore this theme of God's judgment and what we, how we feel about that. But I want us to just allow the thought that there are people who long for God to act. They need justice to be seen. But then how do we look at this passage itself? All of these dramatic, vivid images. Is it literal? Is it symbolic? Is it specific, talking about specific events in history? Or is it more general? My basic reading of Revelation is that this book describes things that happen throughout time and they show patterns and themes that repeat themselves. And so it's significant that there's a number of references here to the Old Testament. Uh, Wormwood, for instance, which we read about here, is from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Locusts are mentioned by the Old Testament prophet Joel. But most obvious of all, there are clear references here to Exodus and the plagues that came upon the Egyptians. The first trumpet sees fire and hail from heaven, just like the seventh plague in Egypt. The second trumpet sees the the oceans turn to blood, just like the first plague in Egypt. Uh, The fourth trumpet sees the sky turn black, just like the ninth plague in Egypt, and, and so on. And this actually helps us see the purpose of these trumpets, what God is trying to help us to see. It's a warning to God's enemies and a reassurance to his people. It is, first of all, a reassurance to God's people that he's listened. One of my favourite verses in the Bible is from Exodus 2. The context is God's people have been enslaved by the Egyptians and they're, they're, they're really struggling and they're crying out to God for help. They cried out for help in Exodus 2 verse 23 and we're told that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows. And then in the passages that follow, God responds. He acts. And so it is here. God's people are crying out for help. God hears, God sees, God remembers, God acts. This is a reassurance for God's people. God is in control. He will respond. But of course, much more than that, it is a warning to God's enemies. A warning of God's judgment anyone who had set themselves against him. And I think we see his judgment in three realms. First of all, we see it in the natural realm. The first four judgments, uh, the first four trumpets uh, bring God's judgment through nature and natural disasters. So we have hail and fire from the sky, which perhaps is like lightning or a violent thunderstorm. A great mountain burning with fire, it sounds like a volcano. Uh, the stars of the heavens are darkened like an ominous, uh, an ominous eclipse. Uh, these are all very conceivable and familiar, particularly for those in the first century. Uh, remember, John is writing at the end of the first century to people living in the Roman Empire, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, there were often famines in this part of the world. A number of the cities that represented in this book, uh, they experienced horrible earthquakes. And he's writing about just about 15 years after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, 
uh, quite an extraordinary thing. Uh, We're told that a deadly cloud of molten rock rose as high as 30 kilometres in the air. Uh, They think it was uh, so powerful that it released 100,000 times the thermal energy of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki A-bombs. This was an extraordinary cataclysmic event. It's really interesting reading uh, the account of someone who was around at that time, a guy called Pliny the Younger. He writes, Broad sheets of flame were lighting up many parts of Vesuvius. Their light and brightness were the more vivid for the darkness of the night. It was daylight now elsewhere in the world, but there the darkness was darker and thicker than any night. Sounds like Revelation 9, doesn't it? And humans are very aware of these kinds of things. These natural disasters imprint themselves on us. They scar our consciousness. Uh, You think of the tsunamis of Boxing Day 2004, Fukushima in uh, 2011, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, killing perhaps 200,000 people, or our own bushfires, which scorched 18 million hectares of Australian bushland. And when we hear about these things, often our response is, is to, wonder, to wonder if God is trying to say something to us. In the face of these natural disasters, we are very aware that of our smallness and God's bigness. Something profoundly humbling and often unsettling about them. Uh, We can harness nature, we can harness wind, but we can't control it. And in these moments, we feel that very strongly and we wonder if God is trying to say something to us. I think this passage suggests that sometimes, yes, he does. God controls the elements, Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And sometimes he moves these elements in judgment against those who would oppose him. Now, obviously, this raises questions. How far can we take this? Can we say, for instance, that this earthquake was in response to that sin? You know, did we have all of these bushfires because of this certain sin in our country or something like that? I think it's both hard and easy to answer that. It's hard because we don't actually know God's mind. Uh, the Bible's very clear. Sometimes he does specify, but this is because of that. Often, though, he doesn't, and Jesus actually warns us against presuming to do that. So we have to be extremely cautious. Unless God makes it very clear, we can't just say that this natural disaster is because of that sin. So it's hard to say that. However, it's easy to say that all natural disasters ultimately point back to human sin. You see, the world was created perfect. Everything was ordered and beautiful. We read in Genesis, it's good, it's good, and it's very good. Everything is perfect, and and nature is working with us and supporting us and blessing us. But then humans turn against God, and everything turns against us. A curse comes into the world and now nature works against us. And so sometimes God uses that to judge us. This is the consequences of our sin. So while we can't say that this sin leads to that disaster, we can say that human sin leads to all disasters. Does that make sense? 
And whenever this happens, whenever we see these natural disasters, God is saying, stop and listen. Recognise my authority. Repent of sin, general and specific. Repent of resisting me. Acknowledge my power. Stop trying to control this world and recognise that I control it. So the question becomes, will, will we do that? I was fascinated to see how people responded to the bushfires. Uh, some people really seemed to respond with a, with a kind of faith in Malakuta. People were saying on the beach, now I'm not a praying person, but I'm praying today. Right? And there were some remarkable um, escapes and deliverances, miraculous really, and hopefully people have gone on with their faith because of that. What I found fascinating was that uh, a lot of people started praying for rain. We were told that there wasn't going to be rain for several months, really, not significant rain, and yet we've seen a lot of rain in the last month. You'd almost suggest that God is answering some prayers. Well, some people refuse to accept that. Thank you for the amen. Amen to that. Well, some people refuse to accept this. ABC uh, News website posted a story about the rain in New South Wales with this headline, Prayers Answered as New South Wales rainfall extinguishes the Corowan bushfire. And people got really upset. As this came out on Twitter and people responded, prayers answered by who? Prayers have no place in journalism, said someone else. Someone else, prayers, rain is not caused by prayers, it's caused by natural phenomena. As the ABC decided to align itself with the Pentecostals. And then there's someone else, who writes your headlines? Hillsong? So... (laughs) Clearly someone has it against Pentecostals. (laughs) Now, I don't know if the writer of the headline meant it literally. It was probably just a cliche. But what I'm fascinated by is that here we have this natural disaster that's happening and people are sensing that they need God. They're recognising that God's authority. And other people are just like, no, 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 that's not even a thing. There is no God. None of this points to him, none of this. They're refusing to accept his authority. Now, as I say, I'm not saying that the bushfires were a result of a specific sin, but they do point to the fact that there is human sin and that we need God and that God is in control. And these people are refusing to see that. They're missing the point of the trumpets. God sends these trumpets. God sends stuff, natural phenomena into the natural world to wake us up, to help us to see that he is there. But people refuse to see that. So I think God starts to use other ways of judging, of warning us. And so we see we move from the natural realm to the spiritual realm. That's what happens in the fifth trumpet. We see these locusts. Now they're clearly symbolic. They're hideously unnatural. They wear something like crowns on their heads to signify some sort of power. Their faces are like human faces to depict intelligence have breastplates of iron because they're impregnable, they're undefeatable. They have long hair and lion's teeth, their tails like scorpions, they're dangerous, they're horrific, they're your worst nightmare. And, and see where they come from, who leads them. Chapter 9, verse 11, they have as, as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he's called Apollyon. Apollyon is the Greek verb for destroy. 
These locusts coming from hell itself, they represent the forces of evil being turned against evildoers. Do you see that? They're coming from hell. So they're being directed by Satan himself, but he's sending them against his own people. God's enemies are being punished by God's enemy. How does that work? I think, first of all, this shows us the essential difference between God and the devil. Jesus says in John 10.10 that the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God brings life. The devil brings only death. That's his whole thing. He's a murderer, Jesus says from the beginning, a liar who seeks to destroy. I was thinking about what might this look like. Consider perhaps the torment of addiction. Uh, The devil is probably behind this. He tempts someone into something. It's just a recreational drug. This will be fun. It will be exciting. This will enhance your life and show you things you've never seen before. And then it becomes an addiction. And everything else is stripped away. The person loses their livelihood, their popularity, their identity. They lose themselves. They're dehumanized. Everything is stripped away. And the devil is behind this. He's seeking to destroy them. Often in Scripture, we see that his, God's most dramatic and frightening judgments are when he leaves us to what we want, just lets us have the consequences of our choices. I think that's what's happening here. We choose to walk away from God, but then we walk towards someone who's not a friend, but a tormentor. This is the writer Paul Barnett says. God sometimes judges us, by letting us have what we want, by exposing ourselves to the spiritual realms that want to destroy us. That's the fifth trumpet. But I want you to see in the sixth trumpet that actually we don't need the devil to destroy us. We can do it quite as well ourselves. You see, the sixth trumpet is this mighty army bent on conquest because there is always someone who is bent on conquest. Throughout history, there have been great empires and armies that have sought to destroy. They've been willing to raid and pillage anyone in their way. The Mongols, the Vikings, Hitler and the Nazis. There's always someone, and I want you to see just how deadly they are. The fifth trumpet, the spiritual realms, they can torment, but they can't kill. The sixth trumpet, they kill a third of mankind. They're far more devastating. I think this represents... Humanity's capacity to destroy itself. God judges us again by leaving us to what we choose. We choose human power and then human power destroys us. And there's always, we're living in this fear of human power, even the strongest. When John is writing, the Roman Empire is the strongest empire in the world, the strongest it had ever been. Massive, mighty, powerful. But even they had someone they feared. On the eastern edge of their uh, empire, across the river Euphrates, was the Parthians. They were famed for their cavalry. And so do you imagine if you're reading this, and you're a Roman citizen, and you read about someone coming from the Euphrates, this mounted troop, 200 million people coming to destroy you. 
everyone has someone to fear. Humanity continues to trust itself and power destroys it. Humanity destroys itself. Now we keep trusting in human power whenever we see this. We keep thinking, oh, politics is the answer or a bigger army is the answer, but it never is. God is judging us, judging enemies of his enemies, but letting them see the fruit of trusting in their own power. And we keep seeing it all through these trumpets, all through these judgments. Will people listen? Will people learn? You see, they're not these, the purpose of these trumpets isn't just to punish. It's actually to warn and even to invite. You see, within all of these judgments, there's also restraint and a kind of mercy. You'll notice that throughout it, we hear that there's a third, a third destroyed, a third of this, a third of that, a third of that. That's hinting at God's purposes. A third is a lot, but it's not everything. It's not even a majority. And God is leaving the rest so that people can respond to him. He's inviting them to come back. You can see what's happening here. Why don't you be a part of the repentance? Why don't you turn to me now before everything else could be destroyed? And in fact, it's pointing towards that. It's pointing, this current judgment is pointing towards his ultimate judgment. You see, in Mark 13, for instance, we're told that the, when Jesus returns and the final judgment of God comes, that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. That's what all of this is pointing to. This is kind of a foretaste of it. And he's hoping, God is saying, you've tasted a little bit of this, now surely you'll avoid the rest of it. You don't want the rest of it. Is giving people a chance to respond. And so every trumpet declares both God's power and his judgment, but also his mercy and his desire for them to turn. So will they? Will people turn? Well, apparently not. In chapter 9, verse 20, after the sixth trumpet, we get this little summary. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In the midst of all of these things, they still hold on to their sin. When the disasters come, instead of turning to the real God, they turn to their fake little gods, imagining that this thing that they can't even see or hear or do anything, it's just a piece of wood, as if that could rescue them. Of course it can't. And because they, they hold on to these gods because they ultimately want to hold on to their own way of life. They refuse to let God in. They do not repent. And really, it's just like Pharaoh, isn't it? You know, these trumpets represent something like what happened in Egypt. And you know the story in Egypt. The plague comes, Pharaoh is bemoaning it, he asks for mercy. Oh, look, I'll repent if you get rid of this. God gets rid of the plague and then he hardens his heart. We're told again and again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we watch this and we think, what are you doing, mate? Like, can't you see? But then look around us. Perhaps even look inside your own heart. When difficulty comes, when disaster happens around us, do people repent? Do they stop? Do they acknowledge God? 
Many people don't. Well, having described these first six trumpets, we get this very long interlude before the seventh trumpet. And during this time, God's people come into view. Uh, They've been here and their prayers prompted God's response and largely they've been out of the picture until now because now we discover our role. It's a difficult role. In chapter 10, a mighty angel appears bearing a scroll in his hand, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. The scroll uh, represents God's purposes in history and it's unrolling. The scroll unrolls as things happen. Now John is told to grab this scroll and to eat it, to imbibe it, uh, to to absorb the message here, to make it part of himself. And we're told it has a bittersweet taste. 10 verse 10, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. That's because God's plans for history, for the future, are bittersweet for his people. They're sweet because God is on the move. God is responding to things and he will ultimately finish all of this and make sure that his people are vindicated. We're going to see that in a minute. But they're also bitter because before that happens... God's people have a task that will bring them suffering before the end. For the end to happen, God's people have to go through something very difficult. And we read about this in chapter 11. In verse 3, we're introduced to two witnesses who prophesy. There's a lot of conjecture about who these witnesses are. Are they literal people? Uh, Some people think there might have been two prophets at the end of the first century who were martyred for their faith. Others think it might be Moses and Elijah. There's some suggestion of that in verse 6. And there was a Jewish legend that Moses and Elijah would return before the end of the world. I actually think, though, that they're more symbolic. They actually symbolise the church, that God's people witness to Christ in every age. So we read in Acts 1, for instance, when the church begins, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And and, uh, they were witnesses to Christ. And as we take on their ministry, taking the gospel to every part of the world, we become witnesses as well. We are witnesses to who God is. In the midst of everything, we're pointing to God. When there's natural disasters, we point to the God who has authority. When there's spiritual uh, difficulty in the world, we we try to show people the God who is of light. When armies come and destroy, we seek to find hope and, and show people that there is a King of kings and a Lord of lords who is above all of these things. We witness to God in every circumstance. We show the world who he is. And yet we see in this passage that people reject our witnessing and destroy, seek to destroy us for it. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit, Apollyon, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Whenever God's people have sought to point to God, witness to God, 
show who he is, people have responded badly. We're told here that the world is represented by Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem, places that oppose God, and then finally in Jerusalem sought to destroy God by killing Jesus. That's the response that people have. And they glory in their deaths, verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. People rejoice over the death of God's people. They're exchanging presents. When their persecution comes off, it's like Christmas to them. Why? How can they hate God's people so much? Well, we're told that our words are a torment to them. A torment? How? You know, we we say that the, the news about Jesus is good news. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. We're, we're proclaiming good news to the world. So how can people respond so badly? How is it a torment? Well, I think it's a torment because it challenges the very spirit and heart of humanity. We were created to live in relationship with God. But we choose not to do that. We want to resist him. We want to get rid of God in our lives. And as we declare the truth, we're saying, no, 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 no. God is your creator. He's your Lord. You need to live with him and for him. And we say, look, this is not possible. You can't do this unless God forgives you. But you can't earn that forgiveness. That's a torment to people. To be told, first of all, that I need forgiveness. That suggests that I'm not a good person. Everyone in the world wants to believe that they are good. And to be told that I can't even earn my own forgiveness, I can't can't find something to pride myself in, to work towards, that's a torment to people. And so people resist it and reject it. It's bittersweet. It's sweet because it offers forgiveness, but it's bitter because it suggests that we need it. Do you know, the Greek word for witness is martis, the word which we now know as martyr. And that shows us that being a witness to God is tied up, bound up with being a martyr. To witness to God is to expose yourself to the rage, to the anger, to the resistance of the world. Many of you have experienced this. Perhaps people scorn you. Perhaps people reject you. Perhaps you make a stand for something and they despise you for it or they bully you because of it. Some of you might even have experienced physical suffering because of it. Of course, we have many, many brothers and sisters in the world. Every six minutes, on average, a Christian is killed for their faith, for witnessing to Christ. To witness to Christ... It's to expose ourselves to the world's anger. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the more people need to hear the message, the more likely they are to resist it. You know, a darkened, hardened heart needs this truth most of all. They need to hear the trumpets of God's warning, and yet they're the most likely to reject them. 
And yet I want you to see that despite this, despite the difficulty of what we face, we're urged to keep going. God's people continue on. Verse 11, we're told after three and a half days, they're killed. And after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw him. God's witnesses, God's people are persecuted and killed, but then they rise again. They rise from the dead, or so to speak, because no matter where the church goes, no matter how quickly or, or how dramatically people resist them, and no matter how often they think that the church has been destroyed, it always rises. They closed down China. 50 years later, they discovered that there's millions of Christians. No matter how often it looks like the church has been destroyed, no matter how often it looks like the witnesses of Christ have been silenced and stifled and snuffed out, there's always someone who rises. In every generation, God's church continues and the gospel continues to go out through us. And in fact then, God, gives, uh, God invites us to be bold. Going back to chapter 10, verse 11. You'll see that John is given the scroll and he's told to say, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This message is difficult. It's bittersweet. You're going to face suffering. But go forward anyway. Be even bolder. It's totally counterintuitive. Tim Chester notes that he's saying, you're going to have difficulty, but I still want you to go and speak to the most important people, the people who have the power to hurt you. Go and tell the gospel to them. It's crazy. But finally, it has an impact. In chapter 11, verse 13, we're told that there is another disaster, an earthquake. Many people suffer through it. And then we're told that the rest were, glory, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Finally, people respond. They hear the trumpet, the warning, and they turn to God. Why have they turned? Is it just because they're terrified? That's part of it. But I think it's more than that. You see, we have this period between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, which describes God's people being witnesses, going out there and sharing the truth. And as they do that, they're pointing to God, and finally it makes sense to people. Once they see the disasters around them, they finally see, I understand who God is. And they finally turn to him. Our ministry prepares the way. So that when people see God's power, they finally respond. We have this very strange role, don't we, as Christians? We tell the gospel and people react angrily. And yet our willingness to tell the gospel finally has an impact. It makes sense of everything for people. We die so that others might live. That's familiar, isn't it? That is, of course, what Jesus did. He died so that we might live. Because we were enemies of God as well. We were heading towards this judgment that God was talking about. But by his grace... He caught us, softened our hearts and turned us to him. He died so that we might live. And now his death and his life 
becomes the model for our lives. We give so that others may gain. We allow ourselves to be weak so that we break up the hardness of others. We die so that others might live. God's people are constantly asking, when will God do something? When will he respond to the cries of his people? The Apostle Peter asks the same question. And in 2 Peter 3, he tells us why. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't God just acted? Because he wants more people to repent. And he's giving us time to get out there and to be witnesses to him so that people do repent, so that people do respond. See the heart of our God. I get that it's hard for us to hear about his judgment, but see also his mercy here. He's waiting, longing for people to respond and inviting us to be a part of that work, sharing the truth with others so that they respond. And then finally, we see the seventh trumpet blown in chapter 11, verse 15, the great trumpet that signals the end of all things, the final judgment. Verse 18, the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God waits, gives people a chance to respond. Some people do, many people do, but others don't. And there must be a final uh, resolution of these things, a final judgment but I want you to see in verse 19 that the God's temple in heaven is open and the ark of his covenant was seen within and I think that's the lasting image that God wants for us so the ark was a sign of God's presence and his promise it was giving to God's people as they came out of Egypt through the time of the exodus and it went with them wherever they went it's God saying I'll be with you no matter what no matter where you are No matter what happens, I'm your God. And I think that's the last picture that God wants us to see here. As we face this time of difficulty, as we face the the trouble and the travail of witnessing to Christ, the risk of that, he wants us to see the ark, his presence, his promises. God will be with us always, just as he was with Stephen, as he was stoned and he sees heaven opening up. And his promises are sure. God will lead us home. God will be fair and just. He will reward his people who will judge those who resist him. I started the talk today thinking about the Christian martyrs of Turkey. Uh, They told their story through this letter that went right around the world to their brothers and sisters. It's amazing how familiar their story feels to this passage when Suzanne Gesk expressed her wish to bury her husband in the city, the governor tried to stop it. When he realised he could not, a rumour spread that it was a sin to dig a grave for a Christian, just like the story of the witnesses. Similarly, Erga, the new convert, was given a Muslim burial, his family just refusing to accept his conversion. That's so familiar. But Pastor Nakati was able to have a proper funeral and it was this profoundly moving affair as God's people came together from everywhere to honour him, to worship God. A great risk to themselves, the 
Turkish police had labelled Christians a terrorist organisation on, on the same level as Al-Qaeda. So they had secret police filming everyone who came to this funeral, but still they came because they wanted to witness to God. This took immense courage. And then Gesk's wife addressed the public. In an interview, she said that she forgave those who had killed her husband. She didn't want revenge, but said, Oh God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just like Jesus on the cross. Just like God, who pauses, who warns, and then invites people to come to him. The God who wants all people to come to repentance. One columnist wrote of her comment. She said in one sentence, what 1,000 missionaries in 1,000 years could never do. In her suffering, she pointed to Christ. In death, she pointed to life. Let's pray. Father God, this is a very heavy passage. I don't know where our hearts are right now. Maybe people here are really struggling with this passage. and I think we should all feel something. Lord, meet us in this. Thank you that your spirit is within us, teaching us and guiding us. Lord, help us to walk away from this passage, seeing your authority. You are the God who created all things and owns it and controls it. Lord, may we recognize your greatness. We are humbled by your power, fearful of your judgment. So we're reminded that your judgment first came on Christ because we were your enemies. But you took that punishment for yourself, that judgment, so that we could live. You died so that we could live. Lord, help us to be witnesses to this, to warn people, to encourage people, to invite people, to help people see you in the midst of all things. May it have an impact. Through our lives, may we point to the one who gives eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.